Hello and welcome to IR Thinker, where international affairs are discussed. I'm Martin Zupko. Two weeks ago, I gave a lecture to my students about radicalization, extremism, and new centers of terrorism. And I realize I speak more and more about the United States. Therefore, today we're going to speak about extremism, radicalization, neo-Nazi movement in the United States. My expert today is Jeff Scoop. Jeff, hello. Hi, Martin. Thanks for having me. Jeff is a unique guest. Uh, just follow this sentence. Once America's most notorious neo-Nazi leader, now a consultant to the Simon Wiesenthal Center, an inspirational speaker for Conscience Campus. How contrasting is this sentence? But Jeff has a unique story to tell us and also answer, he will answer many interesting questions. So just briefly, Jeff is going through schools, classrooms, uh, many international seminars, webinars, sharing his compassion and empathy, which help him to reconnect with humanity. In 2020, he founded Beyond Barriers, a non-profit organization dedicated to countering violent extremism and helping others change their lives. So the first question to clarify all that introduction will be, who was and who is Jeff Scoop? Whoa, so uh, who was I? Now that... Uh... I got involved in national socialism or neo-Nazism from a very young age. Um, my grandfather fought in the German army during World War II, so I was fascinated with that family history. Now, I, I need to preface that by saying my family had no involvement in my uh, involvement in the movement or anything like that. In fact, they were greatly against it and tried everything they could to stop me from being involved in it. <clears throat> my grandfather had said to me a number of years ago, when I was still involved, he said, you know, this path that you're on is going to lead to one of two places, prison or death, and you need to, you need to stop. And um, I was so radicalized at the time, I, I told him, I said, you know, you might have given up the struggle, but I, I'll never stop fighting. And I, I didn't speak to my grandfather in that, in that manner, but, um, and he was actually trying to help me, but I, I wasn't listening. No one, no one could get through to me. The family, um, no one was able to get through. But so the entry point for me was that fascination with that family history. Um, and then I got involved in it and, and the rest is kind of history. I was involved for uh, 27 years. For 25 of those years, I was the national leader of the National Socialist Movement, which uh, for a time was the largest Nazi organization in the United States. Um, so... Unfortunately, I spent a lot of years in, involved in that. Um, who I am now, as, as you mentioned, I, I uh, started Beyond Barriers. I work in peace building. I was uh, a speaker with Conscious Campus and the Simon Wiesenthal Center. I go to schools. I reach out to, uh, I also help people with Beyond Barriers. We help people leave uh, extremist organizations of all different types of extremism. And uh, we try to help people reshape their lives and, and move forward. So um, I take a lot of the experiences that I that I had in life and um, use that in the process a lot like reverse osmosis, you know, basically reversing the the past and, and moving forward to the future and try to uh, uh, hopefully help others not take the same path in life. Jeff, could you please tell us uh, what does it mean to be a leader of a neo-Nazi group in the United States in the modern age? 
because like some people they they don't know what what does it obtain like are you sitting in some sort of office and you're managing memberships and and what sort of events you're going to organize or what is it in practice like what was your life about you know because it's not easy it's like being a manager of ibm or microsoft you know people have sort of illusion about those posts and i think it's good to clarify also for european viewers and international viewers what exactly it means what 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 you were doing because it's 25 years you said or 27 years so it's not like like one year or, or six months you know it's it's basically half of your life in at, when we when we take the current age right right um leading leading in a group like that is a lot of blood sweat and tears basically it's it is um it's like waking up every single day and you're at war with the world um as far as like the managerial aspect and the day-to-day operations um yes you know i organized uh, rallies um sorted out issues between the membership um a lot of times uh being a leader in a in a movement like that was like being counselor father grandfather peer psychologist police officer you name it you had to be everything for everyone um and um but you know the the difficult part of it was is being basically at war with the world all the time i mean you had to be you were fighting against all of the perceived enemies that you had in the world uh which was most people not just minorities and other races but most white people as well and then at the same time you're constantly on guard for people in the group that might be undercover informants or or things like that um so you don't know who you can trust and then there's people that are uh searching for power or or things like that and then they're trying to get get things over on you and it's it's literally the the best way to sum it up is is that you are at war with the world all the time you wake up every single day it's it's a an incredibly high stress environment um it's not mentally healthy it's not physically healthy it's not good for anybody that's involved in it and um as we know it's not good for humanity especially but uh for the people that are in it and the families that are involved it um it it wreaks havoc on on people's lives um a lot of people don't think about we know the outward uh aspect of it and how ugly it is and how terrible it is for society and for humanity. But a lot of times people don't think about what it does to the families and the loved ones of the people that are involved in it. Um, it, it seriously damaged my family. It, it uh, affected my mother's career. It, uh, it brought a lot of problems on our family. You come from Minnesota. <laughs> uh, your father has or had some manufacturing business, your mom dream of being judge so on one on one hand it is like sort of like nice and model family you know in in the united states you know how is it possible that that movement that neo-nazi movement was so strong that you stayed 25 years in it because i know that people make mistakes so you can join it for one year or two years then you realize "Mm, that's not you know something for me but you stayed that long you know and and you didn't have or, or maybe it's not uh, publicly available information, but but from what I know, you didn't have any like huge family problems that you had to escape your family. So why that movement was so strong that it kept you for twenty five years? 
That's a good question. And, you know, a lot of the trajectory for a lot of people is they believe like people that get involved in this, they've come from a, a background of trauma. They've been abused as kids and things like that. And th those things do happen um, in all aspects, different aspects of life. So there was those people. But um, a lot of the people myself, too, they weren't you know, I came from a good home. Um, my mother was an attorney. She did have dreams of being a judge. And it was my uh, involvement in the movement that that stopped that. Um, uh, to better explain that, well, she was an attorney and she had went to, uh, she had uh, ran to be a judge and she was elected to be a judge. And there was a formality, the way she explained it to me at the time, this was back in the 1990s. She explained that um, she had gotten a phone call from the governor of the state and the governor said, you know, it was a formality where they'd sign off on all the new judges. And the governor said, Mrs. Scoop, your father fought in the German army during World War II. Um, your son's a neo-Nazi leader. We do not feel or I do not feel you are fit to be a judge in this state. And that's how it was explained to me. So um, my involvement in this, you know, destroyed her career. Why? Why does a person stay? You know, there's so many different reasons. And for me, um, you know, um, my career, everything, my job was uh, rolled up into this. Um, so that gave me excuses. You know, I'm not saying the excuses were right, but in, in my mind, there were excuses to stay. But it wasn't just that. It was a lot of times it was life experiences. It was things that happened while I was involved, different things that took place. And um, you 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 get into this um involvement. And now I explain it like a cult. When I was involved, if somebody called it a cult, you know, it made me angry. I was like, it's not a cult. It's not like that. And I can tell you girls that I was dating that I was seeing one after another, they were like, Jeff, this is a cult. You're involved in a cult. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with these girls that I'm picking bad choices? I'm making bad choices in women. It was me. I didn't see it, you know, but everybody else could see it. So the radicalized individual that's involved in this stuff, they don't see it as wrong. They see it as a noble endeavor, as, as something positive that I believed that I was fighting for my people, my country. I believed I was a patriot and I was doing something good and noble. So that pushed me on and on and on, um, you know, thinking that I was doing something good. And when you're in that mindset and you're that radicalized, you don't see the humanity in other people. You, you see them as others, as the other, and you heard the term othering. And that's exactly what, what we did is we othered, othered people. I othered people and uh, didn't see their humanity. And um, when you look at the world through a lens like that, um, where it's, you know, you're on this side and everyone else is adversaries, it's, that's a tough way to live. And, and um, you become accustomed to it. And then your support system and your network that you have around you is basically all just people that are also involved in that movement or that cult or whatever you want to call it. Um, so now you don't have any other way of looking at things. And um, anybody that's questioning things, um, their support network is all involved because quite often when you get involved in this, you become isolated and uh, you don't have anybody that's outside of the group that you're really uh, friends with or that you're talking with. I was uh, lucky in the sense where my family didn't completely turn their backs on me, but um, that wasn't the case with a lot of the other people that I knew um, that either they ostracized their families or the family ostracized them. Um, so I, I was fortunate in that sense, but I, they still couldn't get through to me. So at some point um, 
the only way we kept it together in our family was not to talk about it. You know, it's like we could talk about other things, but we would not discuss politics or anything to do with the movement. Can you tell us a bit about the members? Like, as you said, you know, many times people have sort of perception that most of the members are either psychologically not okay, or they come from broken families or, or that sort of uh, societies. There was people from all different aspects of life that were involved in this. Um, <clears throat> in the different groups, it kind of varies the dynamics, you know, of the different types of people that are involved in it. In the NSM, the people that were involved were mo mostly working class, blue collar people, um, working people and poor. And a lot of times in, you know, people that are struggling to get by in life, they're looking for answers. And unfortunately, groups like this give answers. Now, they don't give the correct answers, but they give answers and um, they provide scapegoats. And um, that's exactly what this movement did. So, I mean, you had um, in some of the groups you had uh, people from all different walks of life. And we did have that in the NSM, but the vast majority were working class blue collar people. But there was every every people involved from. Uh, a lot of them had military experience. By the time I left the group, almost half of the group probably um, was had military experience of some sort or another because the group was heavily focused on recruiting veterans and, and things like that. Um, you have anybody from doctors and, and police officers and, and uh, people from all walks of life. But predominantly, it was your blue collar and your working class people. And um, in some of the groups, like I said, it varies. But um, like wealthy people, no, I didn't. I mean, in some of the groups there might have been, but I didn't really know people that were really well off because they had no reason to be involved in something like that. Um, so uh, there was a lot of different people uh, from a lot of different backgrounds. And it wasn't just people that had traumatic life experiences or, or things like that. There was people from all different walks of life and different reasons for being involved. So for some, it might be a sense of belonging. For some, it was looking for answers. For some, it was uh, reciprocal radicalization. There was people that would join, you know, and they said, well, I want to fight the left. You know, I, I'm against, I fear the left. Um, hatred is based on fear. A lot of a lot of uh, what is involved in these movements um, is fear based. If somebody would have said that to me when I was involved, they would have said, "You don't know what you're talking about. I'm not afraid of nothing. No, we're not afraid of nothing." That's that's the the common the common mindset. But when you break it down and you psychologically analyze it and and you go through these things, it is almost entirely fear based. White replacement theory, fear of your jobs being taken away, fear of immigrants, fear, 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 fear. It's it's a it's a lot of fear. Jeff, when there is a terrorist organization like Al Qaeda or ISIS, Islamic State, there are well-known preachers, uh, people from the religious background, and and they have scripts, you know, written for the followers. How did you get information about neo-Nazi as as ideology? And and how did you prepare what you're gonna to say to people? Because it's like 25 years and you have to say something so they follow those ideas and they respect you as a, as a, as a leader. <clears throat> well, the ideology is is old, you know, but we Americanized it in a lot of ways and did updates and changes and things like that to keep it relevant um, or to keep it Americanized, the National Socialism. But a lot of the belief system was old from National Socialist Germany combined with uh, American 
uh, principles and things like that in later years. So there was um, it, it evolved in, in a lot of ways, the, the politics in some ways to keep up with the times and things like that. But um, as far as speeches and things like that went, I always just spoke from from the heart and what I believed in. You know, I would uh, make a note card. A lot of times it would be on the way to a rally or away to the event. I would just grab a note card and I would jot down a few ideas of subjects that I wanted to talk about. And it's kind of how I it's the same way I do things now when I speak, because it's from the heart. People will feel it and they'll be inspired by it. And um I think that's the only way I don't I never read off of scripts or, or things like that, because I always felt like that was sort of um, rehearsed or practiced. It, it didn't it didn't come from the heart. And I, I think that um, uh, people follow and, and listen to things that they're inspired by. And if you're sitting up there reading off of a piece of paper, it doesn't in, in, inspire people. How does such a organization live? Like, do you have donations from the members or membership fees or you sell some stuff or how is it in practice because we know america is 300 million and something people so it's a big market you know for for the ideology and, <clears throat> and everyone speaks english which is quite different from the european union where we have like more nations more languages so it's much easier to sell something or to ask for something in the united states so how is financing working in that neo-nazi movement so with the group that i was involved in you know there was membership fees and, and there was monthly monthly donations but um that was all fairly fairly minimal um it was hard to finance the group different different organizations some some did quite well uh, on that i don't know if i just wasn't very uh, uh good at fundraising or that the people were too poor a, a lot of times the people just didn't have the money to to contribute but um one of the ways that uh i financed things was i ran a record label or a, a business aspect and that was what that was my job because the organization didn't pay enough for to take a wage or anything like that so i worked for the record label for the store And, um, you know, selling merchandise, uh, clothing, music, you name it, anything to do with the, with the cause. And um, that also helped in some ways fund the organization. And then, of course, you know, the membership would fund the organization as well uh, with donations and, and uh, membership fees and, and things like that. So every, every group is different. Some, some raise money quite well. Um, And do you have any restrictions in the United States when you sell items where we can find maybe swastika or some neo-Nazi symbols? In the United States, it's uh, freedom of speech and freedom of expression. So we don't have the laws like um, in Europe. Um, I know at the time, you know, because the store was international, so that we were selling and trading with people all over the world. And um, I know in Europe, a lot of the stuff was banned and, and letters were coming in from the German government and things like that saying, this CD you guys released is banned. These are the words that... Um, you know, these are the lines in the, in the lyrics that are banned and why and, and, uh, and things like that. So we didn't really have that here, but there was a lot of, um, uh, censorship that was going on in, in some ways where, you know, we were being kicked off social media, credit card processors wouldn't, uh, didn't want to, uh, uh work with the organization or things like that so um there was some challenges in that sense uh of it but that was coming from the private sector um with the united states constitution the freedom of 
uh, excuse me, the freedom of speech and expression is is absolute. So um, unless you're threatening to cause someone harm, like someone specifically, um, that's illegal. But otherwise, um, the freedom of speech and expression is is free flowing. I know it might be maybe more difficult to speak about, but how was that moment that you started to think about maybe that's not for me, I, I might quit that organization? How difficult was that process? Because, you know, after 25 years, it feels like going out from home or from people that you like, you know, so how was it? It was hell. It was, it was hard. It was hard, but it was the right thing to do for me. Um, I left the movement in 2009, early 2019, but I probably should have left in about 2016. So in 2016, I started doubting things. I had started meeting people that were outside of, uh, uh, my sphere of influence, so to speak, or what I was involved in. I had met an African-American man by the name of Daryl Davis, um, uh, who's a, like a brother and a friend of me now today. And I had met a, a Muslim filmmaker by the name of Dia Khan and a lot of other people that are not public figures, but I can mention them because they're public figures, but a lot of other people as well living in Detroit. Um, you know, white people are the minority here. So, um, and I'd lived in Detroit since 2007 and, uh, just meeting different people and, and, uh, you start to see the humanity in, in others and, and Daryl and Dia especially were very, very good at that. You know, they were asking questions. They were trying to understand why I thought the way I thought. And at the same time, they shared very personal experiences about their selves and their life stories and how racism and hate affected them as children. And here I'm coming from a standpoint where I'm thinking I'm doing this, you know, this positive thing for my people. I'm standing up for my race, my country and uh, my, my family, my children. And when I heard their stories about how racism and hate affected them as children and, and some of what took place, I thought about my own children. What if somebody would have done that to my children? How would I have felt? All of a sudden, it, it, reality it kicks you in the, in the, in the head and you're, and you're sitting there going, whoa, maybe this isn't so good after all. You know, look, if this is what it does to people, if this is the effect it has on other people. How is that positive? And so I started questioning things around that period of time, around 2016. And um, I kept making excuses. I kept thinking, um, and, and I know this is going to sound really uh, strange, I think, to some people, but um, I had convinced myself that the National Socialist Movement, the Nazi Party, was a white civil rights organization. I was demanding when I was talking to the media and when I talked even amongst the group and to the public, this is a white civil rights organization. And that's how we want it to be explained. That's the way you should refer to it as. So what I was doing, you know, processing all that after I got out, I was like, man, I was trying to put lipstick on a pig. I was trying to dress up the Nazi party as something it could never be because my own views were changing in the process. And um, I was trying to, to change the group in the process. So that's, that was psychologically how I was trying to, to deal with it. And then after, you know, by the time I left in early 2019, you know, I'd been thinking about it for some time, but who could I talk to? Who could I tell that to, you know, like anybody that you were questioning it, they're going to try to reel you back in, try to pull you back in. 
So uh, before I left, you know, I talked a little bit with Dia about it. I talked with my father um, and a couple of girlfriends, and that was about it. There was about, you could count them on one hand, how many people knew that I was going to leave because I was struggling with it. And then I was thinking about things like, well, what if I left and the next person that takes over the organization or whatever, what if they have people do bad things, terrible things, you know, because like I said, you know, I felt responsible in a lot of ways. And um, so sometimes, you know, new people would come and they'd say, should we go do this? Should we go do that? And it would be illegal things. And I, no, don't, you can't do that. That's not allowed in this organization. You'll be thrown out. You'll be, you know, it's not allowed. So all these things are going through my head. Like, okay, if I leave, these things are going to happen. And then selfish things too. Like, well, if I leave, what about my business? That's what I did for a living for years and years and years. Who's going to hire you? Who's going who's gonna to have anything to do with you? Because um, all they got to do is put my name in Google and, and look it up on the internet. Any employer anywhere you're going to be hired is going to do that. And they're going to see, what, 25 plus years of, of neo-Nazi activity, you know, and, and uh, appearances and all these different, uh, you know, shows and, and news stories and so on and so forth. So that was a concern too. And eventually with that one, there was that, I just had to take a leap. You know, I just had to say, you know what? It doesn't matter. You'll figure this out, but this is not right what you're involved in. And my conscience wouldn't be clear. So I, it would have been easier for me to fake it and to keep going and then just say things uh, that I didn't believe in. It would have been easier in that sense but it wouldn't have been the right thing to do. It wouldn't have been honorable. It wouldn't have been right in my heart or in my mind. And I couldn't do that. So um, I was always driven by principles, even when I was involved. So nothing was going to change in that sense. I, I couldn't change. I couldn't fake it. I couldn't stay involved. I tried to change it um, for a few years. And then when I realized like, you can't change this, you know, there was different signs and different things that were, that were coming up that that told me, you know, that showed me that I couldn't change it. Like one of the, and I, I could give you an example of that. <clears throat> um, just not too long before I left the organization, I had to make a policy. And a lot of these policies were kind of unwritten rules. A lot of them were down in the handbooks and membership books and things like that. But I made a policy for social media. And um, this was kind of one of the wake up calls for me because it was like, I had to make a policy that was telling members specifically, do not post illegal things online. Do not uh, post things that have to do with violence. Do not have to post things with that. Now, the majority of people in the group weren't doing that, but there was a handful that were doing things like that, like uh, posting pictures from a genocide or, or reposting something about a burning mosque and, and things like that. And these were people that I knew um, for quite some time. And it was like, you guys know better than this and you're still posting it. Why? And then the answers were like, well, I didn't make the meme. I just reposted it. You know, and I'm like, how can I, how can I reconcile with this? If they think that's funny or that's okay. And even if that's not my, the majority, there is people in these groups that think like that. They do find that stuff funny or they do say it's uh, ironic humor or that it's acceptable or that it's, it's normalized. That's not the kind of people I want to be associated with. That's not the kind of people I want to be affiliated with. And if I'm having to make those kind of policies, what does that say about the, the belief system? 
it was the same thing with um, people that were going out and committing mass shootings and things like that. I can tell you, like every time that sort of thing happened, I would like look through the membership roles. You know, if a, if a guy went and did a mass shooting, I'd look through the membership roles and go, oh my God, I hope this person is not a party member. I hope this isn't a member, you know? And okay, they're not, they're not. Okay, good. You know, and instead of thinking this ideology might be triggering people to do these terrible things, myself and so many others just dismissed that as it's not like we thought that was good. You know, we thought those things were horrible. Most of us did. But we thought like that the person was crazy, that they went crazy. We never blamed the ideology, you know, and that was, that was so strange looking back now. It's like, clearly, you know, if it was one person or two people, okay, you could say maybe the person was mentally unhinged and they went and they did that, but it's one after another, after another, after another, there's something wrong with the ideology. But when you're embedded in it and you're, you're part of it, you don't see that. So But I want to ask uh, one last thing about your, I'd say, conversion. And that's, uh, for many, it's it's just unthinkable. Jeff Scoops and the Simon Wiesenthal Center. So you, what, you send a job application with the 25 years of neo-Nazi experience and they ac they accepted you, or, or how was it? <laughs> that's, that's a good question. So um, <clears throat> Simon Wiesenthal Center had contacted me after i had uh after i got out of the movement and when i when i uh made the announcement that i was going to speak out against racism um one of their representatives uh the chief of their research division had uh reached out and his name's Rick Eaton and uh Rick had reached out and he says you know would you uh like to meet would you like to meet up i said yeah so let's let's meet up and um i, I went up and I, I met with them and I explained, you know, my intentions of speaking out against hate, hate and racism. And, um, um, and, you know, they do a lot of that as well. And um, one thing that was really interesting, I said, well, it was nice meeting you, Rick. Uh, you know, it was really nice meeting you. And he goes, we've met before. And I says, no, I don't think so. He goes, yeah, we did. And then he mentioned, he rattled off where we met. It was at a small Uh, Christian identity gathering where I was speaking at, a, at, a, at this small private gathering and he was undercover there. So we had met, we had met at that, at that time. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe that. You know, I mean, we knew there was always people undercover and stuff. We didn't know, always know who. So um, that was quite interesting, but yeah, the Simon Wiesenthal center for people in the movement, it was a pretty scary group. That was the original Nazi hunters. You know, so for me, the irony of that is, and, and uh, um, the Jewish community, I have to say, you know, they were the community that I dehumanized and vilified the most. Uh, most people was, would say, um, especially, you know, for years and years that, um, and I've explained this as well, too, like I'd let go of racism a number of years before I left the, the NSM. And I said to people and they just look at me like, well, what are you talking about? But I was a raging anti-Semite. I was, I was so anti-Semitic and, and uh, people thought I was ex in the movement. People thought I was expert on the Jewish question and all this. Well, the truth was I thought I knew all this stuff about the Jewish people, but I really didn't, you know, today, some of my uh, closest friends are, are Jews and, and, um, of the Jewish faith. And, and I've learned so much more by spending time with them, 
um, you know, sharing meals. Um, when I'm on the road, sometimes I'll, I'll stay with different Jewish families and different, different people. I learned about Orthodox uh, households and different sinks and all the different things about keeping kosher and all that. I didn't know any of this stuff, you know, but I thought I did. And uh, when you see the humanity in, in the people that you once vilified and they show you that type of compassion and forgiveness and, and um, understanding, being able to ask questions freely and and have them have people explain it it, it was it, it was mind-blowing it was it was life-altering and um you know those of us that were involved in this stuff you know we carry a lot of guilt a lot of shame a lot of regret um i try i remember that stuff i try not to live in it because it's not mentally healthy to do so but i remember that stuff and um uh, I've learned so much uh, from the past and having those, those human connections and being able to ask those questions is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about speaking out now and trying to help people. Because um, if we can reach people before they get radicalized, before they get to the point where I was and so many others were, um, you know, show them in, in school at a young age that, you know, Hey, People may worship different, their skin tint may be different, their skin color may be different, they may uh, choose a different God than you choose. We are all united in our shared humanity more than anything. And um, instead of being a f a fearful or hateful of those different cultures or customs, learn about them, you know, ask questions and, and understand why, you know, people engage in, in uh, their different customs and cultures. And, and you might find that uh, it's quite interesting and it's quite fascinating. I know I sure do. And and uh, my love for history and my interest, what drew me into the movement, also that, um, I want to say open-mindedness. Um, originally, I was open-minded in life. And that's why I got into this stuff. When I got into it, your mind slams shut. Now you're closed-minded and you're narrow-minded and bigoted. Um, but reopening that, and uh, being able to to rehumanize um, is so so critically important. And then you're you you're back in humanity, and um, it's life is just so much better. Jeff, how has the digital landscape, especially social media, shaped radicalization in the United States? Uh, some students might ask: Is this working mostly online? like all those communication events, movements, acceptance to be a member, or it is more based on a personal, let's say, recommendation? It's both. Um, when I got involved in, in the early days, it was all, you know, personal communications and stuff like that. Um, it was before the internet was a, a big thing. Now, a lot of the radicalization is happening online. Um, uh, algorithms are driving, uh, you know, for example, we could say, uh, say you're interested in Bigfoot, um, and you look up Bigfoot on the internet. Um, now all the algorithms are driving more conspiracy theories or more everything that has to do with Bigfoot. Now you're getting aliens and all kinds of other things, um, that you're looking up. And the same can be said with, uh, far right extremism, far left extremism, Islamic extremism, you name it, any kind of, any kind of extremism. When you're looking that stuff up, now your algorithms are driving that. And um, for a lot of these people, a lot of your mass shooters, a lot of, a lot of these individuals that are doing terrorist attacks um, have been radicalized online. Um, it wasn't like um, years ago, you still have your groups and things like that, but um, um, in real life, 
you know, activities. But um, a lot of people are being radicalized on their own online and, and they're taking the ideologies and they're acting on them. So it's, it's, a, it's a serious problem online. In what ways uh, social economic disparities fuel radicalization in the United States? Economic disparities are a huge part of it. It's, it's, a, it's overlooked quite often, but it's a huge, huge part of it. Like I had mentioned earlier, the wealthy people are not involved. There's, there's very few. Um, I'm sure there's some, but there's very few that are involved. It's the people that are really struggling. And what's interesting about that, and uh, especially psychologically, is you know, you're involved in, say, a group like the NSM or the Klan or, or any of these type of organizations – and you're speaking down and you're looking down upon uh, minority communities, black communities, other, other communities, these are the same people that are struggling just like you are. There's actually more, you know, you have more in common with them than you do the elites and, and these other people. So it's, it's a huge, uh, it's a huge issue, but they're scapegoating and they're, you know, blaming the Jews or blaming the blacks or, you know, whoever, there's always somebody to blame other than looking in the mirror or trying to, um, you know, improve your life. Uh, like I said, these groups offer solutions or answers, excuse me, they offer answers. They're not the right answers. But um, when someone goes, ah, that's what it is. That's why I'm poor. That's why I struggle. Um, you know, um, they feel like they've woken up and now they have a cause to fight for and they have something to believe in and they have the so-called answers, even though they're the wrong answers, they have that, they have that uh, mission and that purpose now. And um, so economic disparities are a huge part of it. And, um, Uh, you know, it goes into a lot of, uh, you know, where some of the, some people think doxing and things like that are, uh, are good, you know, like, oh, let's show where this person works. Let's show where they live and all that. I can tell you every time I was doxed and just about everybody that I know that was doxed or that had their information put out or lost jobs, most of the people in the movement lost jobs over this stuff or, or had a different kind of trouble. Instead of uh, it having the so-called desired effect where they go, oh, well, I've been doxxed. Now I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to quit being this person. <laughs> it does not work like that. I could tell you hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people that had been doxxed that had the opposite effect on them. I could tell you uh, a handful maybe a handful that left over being doxxed and they were not ideologically committed. Um, that same person that left over being doxxed could have tripped and stumbled and been like, oh, I'm done with the movement. They weren't serious in the first place. So it is, you know, holding up those uh, instances and saying it works because this guy or this lady left, um, it doesn't hold weight. It's not true. It's not accurate. What it does is it drives people uh, further into that ideology. You get this um, victim mentality, I, I would say, in a lot of ways in your head. It's like, well, they did this to me, so now I'm going to fight back twice as hard. Um, and that's the way psychologically it worked for me is every time uh, pressure was put on me, whether it was by the law enforcement, whether it was by Antifa groups, whether it was violence, I'm, I've got scars across the back of my head from attacks and things like that. I'm scarred up. Um, anything like that, it had the opposite effect. I would double down, I would get more involved, I'd get more active, and it encouraged, it, 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 fuel, it fueled the fire, so to speak. You mentioned that approximately 50% of the members, they had some sort of military background. So 
my question, maybe logical one, is there a, an impact of the US interventions abroad on the radicalizations in the United States? So that's a really good question. Um, the NSM in particular was heavy on recruitment of, of veterans, and that was for a number of different reasons. The structure of the organization, the way we we uh, set it up, was like based on a ranking system, so it had a lot of familiarity with the with the military structure. The structure was uh, was there, so. When someone got out of the military, if they were looking for that camaraderie and brotherhood and, and a mission and a cause, something to fight for, um, it was provided in that sense. Um, again, in the wrong sense, but it, it, it was that familiarity. Um, not all of the other groups, in fact, most didn't have that, that sort of structure and did not have as many veterans in the group as, as NSM did. But it was also um, very, it was careful how we approached it. Um, in the sense of, you know, we'd say, well, we don't believe in a lot of these foreign wars, but we still support the troops. And I know I got into arguments sometimes with other groups and other group leaders, especially when there was some um, alliances and things like that, where other groups were saying, we're not flying American flags. I don't know why the NSM does that. And um, we don't, uh, you know, we don't like what the military is doing. And they would say disparaging things about veterans. I'd, I'd tell them, you got to be care you got to be careful and stop running at the mouth because you're surrounded by veterans in, in this room. You know, don't talk like that. Um, so it was very uh, a delicate way, I guess we would approach that. Um, but, uh, you know, there was multiple reasons why uh, military people would get involved um, in that sense. What's about people coming from prisons? Prison, uh, the prison to radicalization pipeline is 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 formidable. It's it's quite uh, quite extreme. There was a lot of people that would uh, go into prison and they didn't have any racial beliefs or things like that. And they would come out and they'd be racist. Because um, in a lot of prisons, uh, things are very tribalistic. They're divided up along racial lines. Um, there's a lot of uh, race-based stuff going on in there. So <clears throat> you had a lot of radicalization going on in the prison systems. but um, and, and that varied uh, as far as different groups as well. Because in uh, a lot of people think when they think of white supremacist groups that it's all kind of the same. But there's so many different uh, levels, like you have your accelerationists and these people that are openly promoting violence. And then you have, uh, you know, the above ground groups like your NSM and, and groups like that. And then you have your your prison type groups like your Aryan Brotherhood, Aryan Circle, et cetera, et cetera, that are engaged in like criminal activities and, and things like that. Specifically, that's the driving force behind behind those groups. So. Um, yes, they were, uh, racial, but, um, it was more based. Some of those are more based on criminality. So when you had people coming out of, of the prison systems, you had to make sure that, uh, they weren't getting in, you know, involved in, in criminal activities and things like that. So, um, in the organization I was involved in, there was rules and regulations on that sort of thing. If someone was, uh, involved in serious criminal activity, or violence or, or things like that, um, they could be thrown out, but other groups would, would seek out those kind of things. It just really depended on the organization, but it's definitely a serious pipeline and it's a serious problem. Now, as you are on, let's say, other side, what sort of 
driving forces of or or waves of extremism can you observe from that other side like is it only neo-nazi or maybe there are different streams that you would like to mention so we have the whole picture or the spectrum of those ideologies yes thank you for asking that because i think a lot of times when people talk about radicalization and they think about this sort of thing they just focus on the far right and um for one that's not accurate and it's not uh it's not wise there's something called reciprocal radicalization and a lot of people that were involved in in the cause uh, joined because they wanted to fight against the far right, or far, far left and vice versa. On the far left extremists, a lot of people are getting involved because they want to fight the far right. So this this is uh, called reciprocal radicalization. It's it's uh, um, wanting to fight the the other side, and you become more and more radical in in your belief in doing so. So um, you know, there's far right radicalization. There's far left radicalization. There is um, religious uh, radicalization. You know, you look at groups like ISIS or Al Qaeda, um, and you wonder a lot of a lot of times people think like, look, this guy's chopping off somebody else's head. They must be inherently evil, you know. And of course, it is evil, but in that person's mind, they're doing the work of God. They've been completely radicalized. They think just like you know, I had explained earlier about thinking that I was doing something honorable and noble. The ISIS, uh, the ISIS uh, radicals and people that are beheading people also believe that. Of course, you know, you're going to have a percentage of psychopaths and and uh, sociopaths that are doing these kind of things. In and those types do uh, tend to be drawn to more radical organizations. And I I have crossed paths with those people in in my life, unfortunately. Um, but they are the minority, um, you know, in, in just the percentage of the population, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's, it's quite small. Um, so most of the people have been radicalized to these beliefs and they're doing terrible things in the name of their ideology. And it's not just far right, but it can be uh, all kinds of different, um, political spectrums, religious spectrums, um, you name it. Um, even to some uh, some degree, uh, gangs uh, fit into and cults fit into these categories. I know that's a little different, obviously, but there is some similar dynamics. But one thing I think that was really fascinating for me, um, I can say when I was involved in the far right, I always thought like, oh, well, we can defeat the far left anytime we want because they're not committed. They're not ideologically committed like we are. So we're going to beat them anytime. What I've, you know, and that's that was that narrow-minded thinking. Once I got out and I was able to process things and better understand it, and learned about the radicalization of from all sides, religious, political, and all that, the social structures of these groups, even across the spectrum of ideologies, the radicalization process, the thought process, and the social, uh, the social structure are quite similar across all these different uh, lines. So if you have somebody that knows about right-wing extremism, they probably also know about left and the religious extremism as well, because um, there's so many similarities. And that, for, for me, that was really surprising at first. Um, now it just totally makes sense. But at first it was like, wow, I can't believe it that, uh, you know, meeting people, I had met uh, a number of former Al-Qaeda fighters and, and uh, people that had served in, in, uh, um, you know, ISIS and, and different things like that. And then to, to hear their stories and to see the similarities in the process and same with, same with Antifa and far left. 
um, meeting people from there and, and helping people leave that life and hearing their stories. It was so, the thought processes and stuff were so similar. Obviously the politics are very different, but the thought processes were so similar. And that was really fascinating. How connected is, uh, I'd say, American movement with some different parts of the world? For instance, when you were a leader of the neo-Nazi group, um, I mean, what was your connection with Germany, UK, maybe Asia, maybe Japan, maybe China, I don't know, maybe different countries? Because many, many students are interested in sharing information. For instance, you were walking or marching or having some events and you had some posters or flags or some badges, you know. So is this something that you shared with the world and people are interested in? Or we can say that American movement is more independent, more close. So you're basically doing things that you consider as right one in the United States, but you don't export those ideologies or those innovations to the world? Well, it's definitely exported. Um, it was worldwide as far as the, the movement went. Um, some groups uh, have international chapters and things NSM did um, and some other organizations, quite a few other organizations did. And you maintain contact with organizations across the world and, and things like that as well. So um, there was the focus, at least um, in the organization that I was in, it wasn't heavily focused on international recruitment because international recruitment was kind of small. There was like the chapters were small. The membership was small overseas. Um, you know, we were primarily focused on, on America, but, um, that varied from group to group and you still had contacts with, um, other organizations like in the nineties or in the early days, you know, you would swap publications, you know, through the mail and things like that. Later that went to, um, uh, e-zines, you know, and, and, uh, uh, things like that. And of course, uh, with the music industry trading with labels all over the world and and um, and bands and different things like that from all over the world, so it's it's very much global, um, but it does the groups vary from every different country and and uh, there's uh, different rules and and regulations in different countries too. So like groups like the NSM were not functioning out in the open in like Germany or anything because it was banned there. So. What about the U.S. strategies uh, from the law enforcement to tackle those groups? Uh, what sort of challenges are those strategies facing? And based on your experience, are they working, or you think that they should be, they should go through some sort of innovation? Well, you know, and I do, um, I didn't mention this, but I do do some law enforcement trainings, especially in my role with uh, uh, Simon Wiesenthal Center. Um, we have done some law enforcement trainings and primarily what we focus on in that, um, for one, law enforcement really doesn't have a, 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 my experience across the country, they don't have a really good grasp on what's going on in these groups. They have, you know, a basic understanding of it, but they uh, sort of a simplified understanding of it, I, I guess you could say where um, <clears throat> they don't know the difference between like the gangs, you know, like white power gangs and, and you know, prison gangs and accelerationists and your above ground organizations. You know, they're familiar more with the above ground organizations because that's what they see out on the streets and things like that. But, um, you know, we uh, will show them things more about some of the accelerationist groups, some of the groups that are talking about um and a lot of this is going on online in the dark web and different places uh, telegram and different channels 
where they're talking about taking down power stations and, uh, you know, doing terrorist type uh, activities. That, um, I think, is the greatest th threat to our country. And that's something that law enforcement needs to be well aware of. And um, so that's that's primarily the focus, um, the the methods that I that I look at. Um, when I talk with law enforcement, I don't think, you know, they need to uh, necessarily be overly concerned about the groups that are uh, staying within illegal. You know, it's 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 ugly. It's abhorrent. It's it's uh, um, hateful. But if it's within the law, um, you know, there's not a lot they can do about it. But they do need to be aware of, of some of the more accelerationist groups that are targeting the facilities and encouraging people to get involved in illegal activities. Um, that's uh, that some of that stuff. I, I can tell you, I didn't see it when I was involved uh, in the, in the movement, not very often, um, especially being involved in an above ground organization, but um, it is shocking. It is absolutely shocking to see some of the stuff that um you know some of my colleagues have come across um especially like we were um in one group 13 and a 14 year old or 13 and a 15 year old boy were leading one accelerationist group and um they were sharing isis cooking videos and you know showing video which is not cooking is showing how to make bombs in your kitchen um, and things like that. And they were sharing uh, beheading videos and other things like that. And that that was just in one city because we were doing a training in that city and thought, well, let's look and find what we can show them that's local, that this is not in another state or, or on the other side of the country. This is in their backyard and that we came across that uh, in particular. So this is happening all over the place. And, um, you know, uh, if we can stop people from acting on those things and, and getting involved in that, it, it's going to save lives. So um, it's, it's incredibly important. Do you have any community-based uh, movements against radicalization and extremism or maybe some special programs where you have the cooperation with the schools, maybe local councils? We're trying to get more involved in that sort of thing. I, I'm still uh, kind of learning of a, a, a lot of that, how that works. And the Simon Wiesenthal Center has a program called Combat Hate that goes into the schools. And I, I've uh, had some involvement with that, which I think is is really helpful. Um, they have also have a, a Museum of Tolerance and uh, the Mobile Museum of Tolerance, which is a bus that um, uh, that's just in one state now. And I think they have one in Canada as well. But um, it goes to different schools and it's like a, a museum and it'll show people different things. So, um, you know, Wiesenthal is making a lot of good efforts in that in that um, department. But I would personally I would like to get more stuff going on with the schools because that's uh, something I'm passionate about. And, and for a reason, I mean, I, the younger uh, if we can reach people and I've spoken to classes as young as, as sixth grade um, and we were speaking with middle school and high school. They thought, oh, sixth grade might be kind of young. I tell you what, the sixth graders, uh, some of them were asking better questions than the middle schoolers in the seventh grade. Uh, so um, uh, I think at, at young ages, you know, to be able to understand that, uh, you know, bring things to bring humanity together and uh, and teach young people that hate and racism is not a helpful thing for them. Just, Jeff, can you please uh, just clarify sixth grade, seventh grade, which age is it for the Europeans? Oh boy! So, so we can we can imagine like what sort of uh, children or youths you were speaking with. I, 
I think it's about 12, 12 years old is, is sixth grade. I think. Okay. I could be, I could be off a year or two, but I, th I think it's about 12 years old. Right. It's been a little while since my kids were that age, so I don't mm -hmm. remember anymore. But yeah, that's about that age, about that mm -hmm. age. Um, Jeff, the world is speaking about the artificial intelligence. Uh, what's your opinion about artificial intelligence of being used on both sides? Whoa, that's a really, I don't think anybody's ever asked that question before. It's such a new thing that we're seeing. I've, I'm seeing a little bit of it where, where they're using uh, different things to on both sides, you know, to radicalize and to de-radicalize um, on that. Um, I don't think there's anything we can do necessarily at this point to stop artificial intelligence. I think it's, it's a thing of the future. It's, it's something that um, in many ways can improve our lives, but in other ways it could be very dangerous. You know, there's nobody knows that's, that's the, uh, that's the scary thing, I guess, about it is we don't know where that's going. Um, I've seen things now where they're generating images of people, videos and things like that. And you can't even tell uh, you can bear unless you know what to look for. You're not even sure if that's you know a, really a person or not, and and um, or if it's generated AI. So uh, that's that's uh, I think that's going to open up a lot of challenges in the future um, as the technology gets better and better. And in, in that sense, and it's it's definitely something that I think um, a, a lot of governments around the world are kind of talking about it about what what can be done? Should we be regulating this stuff? You know, uh, I think Elon Musk even said that we should have a pause on, on some of that because we just don't know, um, where some of that's going. What is the age category of people who are the most vulnerable to join radical groups, extremist groups based on your experience? I know you spoke about children that you were speaking to at schools, but also from your experience as a leader, what sort of applications you receive, like what sort of age categories? Because this is like emerging problem in Europe. We have younger and younger people involved in radicalization. It's not a surprise. Some of them are 14, 15 years old, and they think they will change the world, you know, because they believe to those ideologies. How is the situation in the United States? It's the same. Um, we're seeing uh, some of the groups, you know, they don't allow um, membership for under 18, but that doesn't mean those kids uh, as young as 12 years old are not getting radicalized online. Um, even video games uh, like uh, Roblox, for example, and I know they've, they've been uh, very diligent about trying to stop people from uh, using their platform for nefarious purposes. But, um, you know, these are games that are geared towards children, like 12 years old, like Legos and things like that. And you've got uh, radicals, extremists that are in there propagandizing and recruiting these young kids um, and, uh, and and feeding them that ideology. So it's, it's difficult to say what's, I would say the most vulnerable are the young people, because even if they're not actively, say, joining a group, they are being exposed to this stuff online. And the parents... Um, especially when I've spoken to parent groups, you know, when you, you say, you know, Hey, are your kids online playing Roblox or Minecraft or, or these, these builder games and just about everybody in the room? Yeah. Yeah. Did you know that in those games, they have things that are, you know, and people that are radicalizing your children and, and they're just horrified because 
you can't watch what the, what the child is doing 24 hours a day. It's not, not a police state in the home. So um, these groups are finding ways to get around that stuff and radicalizing young people. So I'd say the young people are the most vulnerable to it. Um, and that's why I think it's so important to, to reach them. But the like membership in these groups is all over the place though. You know, some of the groups are geared more towards, you know, young men, some are geared towards older people, some are geared towards youth. Uh, the one I was involved in had all, all ages, you know, you had young people, everything from, you know, 18 and up and uh, to people that were senior citizens. So it really kind of depends on the group, but I'd say the most vulnerable is the young people because they're being exposed to, um, the information age that we're, we're in now is um, a lot of times I'll refer to it as like short attention spans. Um, and you're seeing it with reels and these little clips that, that you see all the time where it's like just a few seconds. And, and that's all because it's for short attention spans. And that's because we're being bombarded with information. When we were children growing up, you might've had a couple of TV stations. Now you've got Hundreds. You don't. You, nobody knows what to watch because there's just so much, and that's the way information is these days. It's so fast, and it's coming from all different directions. So, our children are the most vulnerable to that sort of thing, especially with the algorithms and being bombarded with that sort of thing. They're having it pounded into their head, and you don't need a group standing on the street corner to do that. It's being done online, um, and it's it's very um, uh, disturbing. We can't skip a question about the U.S. presidential election. And I don't want to speak about the figures like Donald Trump or Joe Biden, but I want to speak about two political parties, Democrats and Republicans. And I want to know your opinion, how those two political parties have been, let's say, pursuing some anti-radicalizations or how they were fighting against extremism in the United States. Do they have any strategies or do they have any programs like how to tackle extremism in the, in the United States? Ooh, <clears throat> I think both parties are, are um, <clears throat> both parties are concerned with radicalization. I do think that's a concern, um, but um be careful how I answer this. I don't know what exactly um, programs they have going is uh, for for different things like that. I know what we offer, and I know we try to uh, do our part. And I, I wish the government would do more. But I also think there's a lot of um, a lot of politicians that are sort of uh, adding fuel to the fire in a lot of ways um, on both sides of the spectrum. I've seen, um, you know, on the, on the democratic side, you know, all the way up to the, the president, you know, um, uh, Joe Biden, uh, calling people on the other side, uh, you know, MAGA, uh, people extremists and, and, and it's, it's not, uh, and, and vice versa on the Republican side. And they're saying, you know, well, you know, these people are communists and, and, and that, and, and I think that, on both sides is adding to that reciprocal radicalization that I talked about earlier. And people are becoming, we're seeing mainstream ideas uh, in the middle of the spectrum, right and left. Those voices are being less heard and you're hearing the louder voices on the more extreme sides and more, more people are leaning towards those extremes. So we're seeing a divide in the country and a polarization in the country that, um, uh, I, I'm kind of surprised that we're seeing in our, our lifetimes and it's, and it's unfortunate and we need real leaders and we need um, 
uh, voices of reason, you know, to step forward and say, enough of this, let's get back to some things we can agree on. Of course, we're not going to all agree on everything, but we have to stop with this calling people extremists. Um, it, it, it reminds me of when I was in the movement and, um, <clears throat> and, you know, the extreme radical left groups would call everybody that they didn't agree, didn't agree with them Nazis. And, and I remember um, when I was in the NSM, I was like, yes, please keep calling everybody, call conservatives Nazis. Keep saying that because it's going to drive them to us. And that's what people need to think about when they're saying things like that is there's going to be people that go, you know what? You called me a Nazi too many times. Now I'm going to go be one. And that's not, you know, it's not the right way to go about things, but it's human nature for some. It's the same, it's the same, um, it's, it is all part of that re uh, reciprocal radicalization that can take place. And it's a dangerous trajectory that we're seeing in the country and in different parts of the world. And we need to be very mindful of that and be very careful of it and get back to our shared humanity and in, in the middle. We can be right and left. There's nothing wrong with that, but don't go out to those extremes and don't hate other people in the process. The last question for today's interview, Jeff, what should we expect or anticipate in the future when it comes to extremism and radicalization in the United States? And the second little question, what or how should scholars help to tackle the radicalization and extremism in the United States? How can we help you with what you're doing? Well, I think in the United States, I think we're, we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of uh, radicalization, but I, I think there, there's hope, you know, there's, oh, there's gotta be hope. There's, there's, there's people out there, um, that are doing good work that are trying to reach other people, trying to bring humanity together. And I think, um, if we had more leaders that can, that can do that, bring people together, um, and, um, and it's okay not to agree, but we have to see the shared humanity in one another and not uh, not uh, get involved in othering and 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 things like that. And as far as what uh, scholars and other other people can do um, to support the work, I, I think you know just the more we can keep moderate and and effective voices out there and and steer away from um, steer away from some of the extremism. I guess one of the one of the critiques I have is, is a lot of times uh, people that are involved in, in doing a lot of really good work and, and speaking out and against racism and hate, um, they refuse to acknowledge that there's any radicalization on their side of things. And I've taken a lot of flack for pointing these things out, uh, but I don't care. You know, I mean, I, I'm not going to, if I'm going to speak, I'm going to speak from the heart. I'm going to speak honestly. And um, I've been at, at uh, different things where I've heard people say, well, there is no left wing radicals. That's not that's not a thing in the United States. And I, I don't know. You know, um, I, I've seen it. I've experienced it. Everybody knows it. And then when you have somebody that comes in and says it's not true, it's not it doesn't exist then it it just adds to the problem. It adds to reciprocal radicalization. It makes people um, angry that they're being lied to and that they're being um, uh, or misinformed. So I think we need to be very introspective. And and um, and that's coming from a place because I was I'm, I'm coming from a place where I was not introspective at all. I was the guy that always thought he was right and believed what I was fighting for. And I couldn't introspect. I couldn't see anything outside of that. So I'm coming from a place of I know what I'm talking about now, you know, because I've been there. I was one of those people. So um, understanding that 
and trying to introspect and to look at all and consider all different things instead of saying, you know what? Confirmation bias. This fits my narrative. I'm going to be part of this. Look at and understand why other people um, have come to their conclusions, what experiences they had in their life that might have drawn them to that conclusion um, and, and try to uh, be open to different perspectives. So um, I know that was kind of a roundabout answer. There's so many things that can be done, but I think this important work on on healing, um, uh, stopping racism and things like that. And by stopping racism, we cannot have reverse racism and, and, and look at the world as oppressed and oppressor. I think that's a big problem too. Because when you start saying, well, this group of people is the oppressor, what you're doing is cre you're creating fear and angst in the people that were oppressed or that feel that they were oppressed, and you're calling the other person an oppressor. Now they feel bad as well. So th these are not helpful ways of, of looking at things. So um, I, I think that's, uh, I, again, it's a roundabout answer, but I think there's a lot that can be done in that, in that uh, sphere. And we have to stop looking at humanity and looking at one another through those lenses of 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 he's wrong, she's wrong, he I'm right, you know, and just be more open, open to a dialogue because dialogue is is the key to peace building and it's the key to uh, moving forward. Jeff, thank you very much for your insightful thoughts, but also for honesty to speak, you know, from your heart about your past, about your present and future, which I think is not always easy one because it's still 25 years and, and it has some sort of signs on, on a person and on a soul. But what you're doing at the moment with all the people around, with your organization, that's, that's just amazing, you know, and, and I think in some way you represent what America should do in a much larger scale in all the states in the United States. So the problem of radicalization and extremism is not emerging like it is, you know, like I, I never thought that I will be speaking about radicalization and extremism in the United States when I'm going to be doing my, my studies and my articles. So on one hand, it's surprising to speak about those things. You know, America was always considered as a symbol of democracy, freedom, human rights, you know, living together as communities. You know, many people emigrated from Europe to United States, you know, from different countries. And now we have that problem. So I wish you all the best and, and lots of energy to your work because I think it's very difficult, but extremely useful. Jeff, thank you again for being on Aya Thinker. Thank you so much for having me, Martin, and, and keep up the good work with what you're doing uh, against uh, radicalization and extremism. And it was an honor to be on your program. Thank you very much. And see you next time. Thank you.